0: So if you were here the last time I spoke, you know that we wrapped up our uh, kind of a little study that we were doing in the book of Acts. So tonight we're going to move on to do something a little bit different. Tonight we're going to move on to the book of Colossians. Uh, So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 tonight. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, we will get there in just a few moments. And so Colossians is is um, is one of Paul's what they call prison epistles. It's one of the uh, epistles or letters that he wrote while he was in prison, while he was um, he was in prison in Rome. So last time we talked about Paul was going to Rome um, and talked about his journey to Rome. And so when he gets to Rome, he gets there as a prisoner. So this is one of the letters that he wrote while he was in Rome um, as a prisoner. Um, and so um, tonight, as, as we're getting into things, I want you to just take a moment and think about a church think about a church that you would say that this particular church you're thinking of is a great church It's an outstanding church in some area. Uh, maybe it's a church that you grew up in maybe it's a church that you visited once maybe it's a church you saw on TV maybe it's a new song uh, maybe it's just a church that you've heard about and as you think about that I want you to ask yourself a question why did you choose them. What makes that church great? What characteristics did you use to to kind of uh, to come up with this church is a great church? How did you judge the quality of that church? Maybe as you as you were thinking about that, maybe you thought about well, you know, uh, the, the, this church I'm thinking of, you know, they have the like went to that church and they welcomed welcomed us and uh, felt very welcome, very friendly. Uh, maybe you thought, well, the, the preaching, and teaching, the word was just phenomenal at this church. Or maybe the praise and worship was great at this church. Or perhaps they have a strong sense of community. But tonight, I would submit to you that while those things are necessary in order to have a church, those things are not what makes a church outstanding. Think of it this way. Consider a business. Think of, uh, let's pick on Walmart. They have a small office nearby. They have... Uh, an accounting office. They have an IT department. They have an HR department, right? And all those things are are are, are very important in order for them to operate as a business. But uh, I mean, th- think about their HR department. Without their HR department, they can't hire people uh, that to, to, to work in their stores. They can't pay people uh, to, to work for them. And so, an HR department is pivotal for their business. But it's not what makes Walmart a great company. It, it, it's uh, it's not what makes Walmart a great company. I mean, you don't hear people talking about Walmart and their great HR department. Um, so the, 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 there's just things about it that are that are that are common that are that are necessary in order for Walmart to operate as a business. But it's not what makes Walmart a great business. What makes Walmart a great business, a great retailer, is its mission. If you've se- if you've seen any Walmart's commercials, you probably have heard Walmart's mission statement: it's saving people money so they can live better. And so Walmart—that's their mission in in in, in life, and business. And so they, they choose to operate and make decisions around that mission, around that goal. And because of that, they have been able to to uh, to—they're able to sell merchandise uh, for very low prices. And They're a low price leader, and that is what makes Walmart a great business. You know, the same thing can be said for um, for Amazon. Um, their mission statement is to build a place where people can find and discover anything they might want to buy online. I don't know if you've ever shopped on Amazon.com, but they have a huge selection of items on their website. I'm always surprised when I go out there to search for some obscure thing that they actually carry it um, on their website. And so they too have chosen to operate and make decisions based on their mission. And so both these cases, they, they, you know, they, they have, uh, their mission defines how they operate how, and the decisions that they make. And that is what separates them above other retailers. But we're not here tonight to talk about business. So let's get back to talking about church. But the same thing can be said about church. There are certain things that are required in order for a church to be a church. You know, there's, there's usually worship. There's usually preaching. and you know, Fill in the blank of whatever you think is important for a church to have. But those aren't the things that make a church great. Those are just the things that are necessary in order for us to have church. So what makes a church great then or outstanding? Isn't it the same thing? Isn't it it our mission? Isn't it our mission to go out and to disciple uh, the world, to impact the world for Christ, to turn our world upside down? Isn't that what makes the church great? And so tonight we're going to be looking in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be taking a look at a church that Paul says is an outstanding church is a great church and this guy Paul. I think most of you were here for most of the sermons that we preached out of uh, Acts recently. So you know something about Paul, but in case you don't Paul is a person that's attended a whole bunch of churches in his lifetime. He's spoken at a whole bunch of churches in his lifetime in the book of Acts. We can see that he planted uh, numerous churches in his lifetime on his three missionary journeys. So Paul knows something about churches. So we're going to take a look at Colossians, and we're going to pick up in verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to read now the NIV tonight, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. So if you've read many of Paul's letters, many of Paul's epistles, you're probably familiar with the fact that he starts out with a fairly standard greeting. I mean, the young adults just started doing a study in the book of Philippians, and Paul has a very similar greeting in the book of Philippians. But I, I feel pretty confident in saying that Paul would not have said the things he said in this introduction if they weren't true. So I think there's a few things we can learn about the church at Colossae from just his introduction. It's here It says, uh, To God's holy people in Colossae. So we know that they are God's people, they are godly people, they are holy people, people that are set apart unto God. But if you think about it, if the church wasn't whole, it was full of holy, godly people, it wouldn't be much of a church, would it? So I don't think that's what makes them great, so let's, let's keep looking. Um, it goes on to say, to, uh, to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So we can see that they're faithful people. But let's face it, if, if, the, if the people weren't faithful in, in attendance, they weren't faithful in their giving, it wouldn't be very long before the church had to close the doors. So I don't think that's what makes it great. So I don't think we found what we're looking for. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse 3. We always thank God, the, 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 we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Again, if you've read many of Paul's letters, you know that after his greeting, he usually goes into a time when he's commending the people um, to the, the church he, that he's writing to, he's telling them, you know, here's some things you're doing right. Here's some things you should keep doing. And so, um, in, in this case, it's probably even more important for Paul to do that because Paul has never been to the city of Colossae. He's never, um, he didn't plant this church, and he's never actually been there. One of the people that got saved under his ministry actually started the church in Colossae. And so, he by by uh, by by complimenting them by by commending them, he's able to build some rapport with them so that when he gets to later in the letter having to talk about some hard things, um, he has that credibility for them to listen. But it's kind of interesting the compliment that he gives them here. He says, we thank God whenever we pray for you. So he's saying that he's thankful for them whenever he prays for them. Or, per, or perhaps another way, he gets excited when he thinks about them and he's praying about them because of what they're doing. So you might ask the question, well, why is he so thankful for them? Why is he excited about what's going on? Well, we can find the answer to that tonight in, in verse 6. So we're going to jump down to verse 6, and we'll come back up and catch the other verses here in a second. So last two, just for a little bit of context, I'm going to take the last two words out of verse 5. It says, The gospel. Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it ha- as it does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God, uh, the grace of God in truth. And go ahead and read seven and eight, I guess. Uh, and just as you have learned it from Epaphras, the person who planted the church, our beloved servant, he is our f- he is a faithful minister in Christ on on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So why is Paul thankful whenever he prays for them? Why is he excited about what's going on in the church in Colossae? Because, it says there in verse six, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it's doing among uh, among you since you have heard it. So he's he's thankful to God. He's commending them. He's telling them they're doing a good job, and why? Because their church is growing. And the word. And the words that Paul chooses to use here, I think, are significant. So let's take a look at a couple of them. He says, the gospel is bearing fruits. And so that, that, word, that word bearing fruit in the, in, the, in the original Greek, it literally translates to produce results or to cause results. So Paul is saying, when I think of you, I think of a church that is producing results. When I think of you, I think of a church that is causing results uh, or progress to be made for the gospel. And then he further uh, emphasizes that when he goes on to say, and it's growing throughout the whole world. And and the word growing right there in the the Greek, it literally translates to increase, to grow, to spread, or to extend. And so Paul is saying that their church is a church that is increasing. Their church is a church that is growing. Their church is a church that is spreading. It's not static. It's having an impact. And it's growing. It's growing. And you know, everything that is alive that's healthy has one common characteristic it grows. Think about it. Trees are healthy, they grow. If flowers are healthy, they grow. If people are healthy, we grow. I mean, think about it this way if you have a child and all of a sudden the child quits growing, they quit putting on weight, they quit getting taller, wouldn't you be worried? Wouldn't you? Uh, be once you be taking them to the, the best doctor you could afford and, and if trying to figure out what's wrong get it taken care of so they can continue to grow of course you would and the same thing is true with church but in the church in, Col- in Colossae that Paul is writing to they are a healthy church they are a growing church because they're bearing fruit and they are growing they're having an impact on their community and that is what Paul is excited about that they are growing and that is what Paul is thankful for, that they, and, and, why he, and why he prays for them, when he prays for them, because they are growing. And so tonight, I would submit to you that great churches, that healthy churches, that outstanding churches, are churches that are growing, churches that are bearing fruit. It's probably important for us to note before we move on beyond this, that it has to be a healthy growth. I mean, think about it. The human body, you know, if you have a tumor, it can grow rapidly, but that's not really a positive growth. So it's got to be a healthy growth. And the same thing is true in church. It's got to be a healthy growth. And just because a church stops growing doesn't mean that it stops being a church. You know, it, 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 it's, it's still a church. And perhaps by many of the, the world standards, it could still be a good church. But I don't think we can say that a church is, a, is an outstanding church if it's not a growing church. And I hope you know that God wants the church to grow too. He always has ever since uh, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. We can see that God has always wanted the church to grow. And so I I want to take a brief uh, look at a couple of scriptures just to to, um, cover that tonight. Now as we look at the Old Testament, uh, the word church is a New Testament word. So we're not going to see it say the church needs to grow in the Old Testament. But the same concepts are there and they're applicable to us today. So let's take a look at it. just a couple examples from the Old Testament, not too many cuz sake of time. The first one we're going to take a look at is Genesis chapter 22 and starting in verse 17. And and in, in, in Genesis 22:17, um Abraham has just been tested Uh, about his willingness to be able to sacrifice his only son, not not to hold anything back from God. And he's passed that test. And so God is renewing his covenant with Abraham. And that's where this this picks up in Genesis 22 and 17. And it says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashores. And your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because you have obeyed me. So God is saying here that it that Abraham's descendants, which we know is the, the nation of Israel. He's saying it's, it's not just about the nation of Israel. It's about the whole world. And he's saying that, yes, I'll use the nation of Israel to bless the whole world. But it's not just about the nation of Israel. It's bigger than that. And so if we pull that perhaps in today's context, perhaps we could say that it's not just about the, the church, the people attending the church. It's about reaching the whole world, the whole, all the nations for Christ, that they may be blessed through our church. Let's jump forward and look at another example. Uh, Let's look at an example of Moses in uh, Deuteronomy 31 and 12. In Deuteronomy 31 and 12, uh, Moses is uh, giving them final instructions before they cross over into the promised land. Um, And he's telling them here that every seven years they should get together and read the Torah, the book of the law to the people. Let's see why he says that in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 12. It says assemble the people men women and children and who the foreigners residing in your towns so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of the law. Notice it doesn't say just gather together all the Israelites and read them the law. It says gather the men, women and children, the Israelites and the foreigners residing in your town. So if we take this forward into today's context, we can say, you know, what? it's not just about getting together on Sundays and Wednesdays and and, and reading the law, reading the scriptures so that we can learn to fear the Lord. It's about bringing in the foreigners so that they can hear, they can learn to fear uh, uh, the fear of the Lord God and to follow his words of the law. Let's jump forward and look at another example. How about Um, Isaiah 49 and verse 6 Isaiah 49 and verse 6 and it says it's too small a thing for you to be my servants to restore the tribes of Jacob to bring back those of Israel I have kept I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So it's saying here that the the, the tribe of the, the nations of Israel is currently in exile. It's saying here that it, it's God is saying it's, it's too small a thing for me just to bring you back to worship me. I got bigger plans, is what He's saying. It's about all nations. It's about reaching the Gentiles so that they too may have this, uh, have salvation, and so that salvation can reach the ends of the earth. And so the big idea as we look at these three examples from the Old Testament is that since the beginning, since the book of Genesis, it's always been more about reaching the whole world than it has been about just the nation of Israel. Yes, they're, they're definitely a key player. Yes, they're definitely the ones through which God is, is wanting to bless and reach all the nations, but it's always been about reaching the whole world. Let's go ahead and look at a couple examples from the New Testament. There's a lot more that we can look at, but we'll pick a couple easy ones. How about Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, where it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jesus isn't commanding the disciples to just go to the people in Jerusalem. He's not commanding them just to go to the Israelites and tell them about what has happened. He says to go instead to all nations. And there's a lot of examples in the New Testament that we could look at. But uh, we looked at Matthew. Let's look at the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, when the, when the church is raptured, it, it doesn't say in there that it's just the nation of Israel that gets raptured. It's all nations that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it says that there's a multitude upon multitudes upon multitudes of people from every tried, uh, tribe, nation, and creed. And guess what? That is the goal. That is, that is the big idea that God wants us. The church to grow so that when we get to heaven, there will be a multitude upon multitude about multitudes of people there. And so Paul, he's, he's excited about the church in Colossae because, the, because it's a great church. It's a growing church. And in order to accomplish this, um, it had to be a church not inward focus, but outward focus. And so tonight, in the time that we have left, i like to take a look at how... Um, Take a look at what the Bible says the Colossae church did in order to grow. So let's jump back up to verse 3. So in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus in Christ Jesus. So, since, so it says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that the, the church in Colossae had is they had faith. But what is faith? Well, I like to use the definition that we can find in Hebrews chapter 11 or verse one for faith. It says this now faith is confidence in what it, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Again, it's faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith is, is being certain of things that we do not see. It's about being confident to the point that we're ready to act. And so it's more than about you know, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and just getting that head knowledge. It's about more than just being consciously aware of what the Bible has to say. In order to have true biblical faith, we have to get the the truths of the Bible so deep down inside of us, down to our very core, that it gives us a confidence and a confidence enough that confidence enough that we're able to act confidence enough that we're able to move and make a difference. We act differently because these truths are inside of us. We act trusting God will act. And so another definition that I've heard someone use before is faith is the medium by which the power of God becomes visible. Faith is the medium by which the power of God becomes visible. So it's about taking things out of, I theoretically have faith in it. I theoretically think this is true and putting it into the context of, this is practically. I practically have faith in this. Pr- it's practically true. Perhaps an illustration would help, uh, would help illuminate this think about your doctor do you trust your doctor do you have faith in your doctor i mean that they went to medical school hopefully they're looking out to your for your best interests. hopefully they have a bunch of experience and and hopefully they know what they're talking about so theoretically i would say most of us in here probably trust our doctors right but do you practically trust your doctor do you practically have faith in your doctor I mean, it's easy to have, to have faith in him whenever things are going right. You go in for a checkup. They do a whole bunch of tests. They come back and say, hey, everything looks great. You're going to need a clean bill of health. You're doing everything right. Keep on doing it. And you, you walk out, and you're like, yes, I have faith in him. He's telling me I'm doing everything right. Of course, of course I have faith in him. But what about when you're really sick? What about when you, when you go in, and maybe he says, hey, you need to cut this out of your diet right now, or eventually it's going to kill you. Do you have faith in your doctor then? Do you practically trust your doctor then? Do you trust him enough to change the way you live? Or do you just say, ah, this little bit's not going to kill me. Oh, he just meant I couldn't have it three meals a day. One meal a day isn't going to kill me. After all, don't y'all know the doctor's just practicing, right? (laughs) And so it's the same thing with the church. Do you practically, do you theoretically trust and have faith in what the Bible says, or do you practically trust and have faith in what the Bible says enough to motivate you to change how you act? The church in Colossae had that faith, and we. But sometimes we as Christians, uh, I mean, we as Christians sometimes say that faith is critical to our faith. But oftentimes, when when we're talking about faith, it, it, at least. It, as I was thinking about it, the main time I can think that we normally talk about faith is usually in relationship to, to, to giving your life to the Lord and being saved and accepting the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. And it's true. It's very important to have faith then. You cannot be saved without putting your faith in the saving work of Jesus. But at the same time, when you come to an altar and you give your life to the Lord and you, have, you put your faith in Him, when you go back to your seat, do you take it with you or do you leave it at the altar? Because the Bible says you should take it with you. The Bible says that that when you give your life to the Lord, that you should plant a seed in your heart, and that seed of faith should grow over time. If you're healthy, it should grow. And And so we should look at the church of Colossae as an example of how we continue to operate in faith. And back in the verse in Hebrews, it says that faith is is not by is not by sight. And so real ministry that makes a difference. And so a real churches that make a difference do not operate by sight, but they operate and live by faith. An example of this would be, uh, let's take Walmart example. Whenever they want to build a new store in a place, they go and they pull a whole bunch of statistical data and they they look for a specific spot and they crunch all the numbers. And at the end of the day, they want to know, does it make good business sense to build a store there? Will we be able to get a return on our investment if we spend a certain amount of money building the store? Will we get a return on our investment? In the same way, when we decided that we were going to build a new church, um, we sat down. And we looked at some metrics. We said, hey, over the last so many years, we've had year-over-year year growth in people. We've had year-over-year year growth in, in finances. But if we stopped right there and we didn't, look, we didn't go any further, then we would be, uh, then we would be living by, by sight and not by faith. We would just be operating like a business. And while there's nothing wrong with looking at these, these business principles, uh, while well there's nothing wrong with looking at these business principles, uh, if we don't go any deeper, then we're at risk of living by sight and not by faith. So an example of how we, live, we, how we made that decision of walking by faith is when we looked at the numbers, the numbers all said, the building that we're building is going to cost $1.1 million. And guess what? We can't afford a $1.1 million building. But God said it was time to build. So we had faith and we, had, we prayed about it and we felt like God was saying, we were going to be able to build the building for half price. And so we could afford half price. And so we put our faith that God was going to provide. And so we pressed on. We pressed forward, trusting and putting our faith in the fact that God was going to provide. And so far, we're on target to hit that goal of, of being able to build it for about half price. It's also interesting to look at how Jesus taught this principle to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 14, um, it tells a story about um, how Jesus was ministering to a group of people. It says it's about 5,000 men. And he'd been ministering to them all day long. And they're getting hungry and tired. And the disciples come to Jesus and, and they say, Jesus, you should send them away and, uh, so that they could go get, go get some food. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to feed the people. And the disciples, they they looked at the metrics and they said, we have a few loaves and we have a few fishes. It makes no good business sense for us to try to feed all these people with just these few loaves and fishes. But Jesus said, give me the loaves and the fishes and you go organize the people. And Jesus prayed over them and they started passing it out. And guess what? There was enough for everybody. And not just barely enough. there There were basketfuls left over. Do you know how many basketfuls? Twelve. How many disciples there are? Twelve. I don't think that was a coincidence. I think Jesus wanted them to, to as they're going over the, the next few days, the next weeks, as they ate the, the food out of those 12 baskets, to say, that is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. And so they finish up ministering and Jesus sends the disciples on ahead out across the lake and he goes up on a hill to pray. Um, he finishes praying and he decides to catch up with them and he catches up with them the most logical way, right? Just walks across the water, and the only thing more astonishing than that is that someone else decides to get out of the boat and walks on the water too. So Peter, he gets out of the boat and he starts to walk on water. But then he looks around, he sees the wind and and, and the waves, he starts getting afraid, and but Jesus reaches and he starts to sink. But Jesus reaches out and he grabs him, he saves him. And what does he say to him? "You of little faith." And why does he say that? Because Peter was supposed to walk on water. Peter was supposed to, to walk on water and ministry, to walk in faith and in, in doing ministry. And we are supposed to walk in faith and doing ministry as well. We can't do it in our own flesh. We can't do it in our own strength. Jesus is saying that, you have, that the, the, you have a resource that the world knows nothing about. So don't try to do it in your own strength. He's trying to say, you can't build your kingdom with, you, can't build, you can't build my kingdom with your sweat. But he's saying you can build your kingdom with your sweat, but you can't build God's. And so in order for a, a church to grow, it has to have real and genuine faith. In order for a church to make a difference in the world, it has to have real and genuine faith. But it takes more than the faith. It takes something else. Let's keep looking. Uh, we'll, we'll go back to verse 3 and just start back from there. So, <laughs> We always thank God <clears throat> sorry. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord uh, Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all God's people. So churches that grow have faith, but they have something more than faith. They have love. And in the same way that you can't sell a product that you can't prove works, or it's very difficult to do that, it's very difficult to sell your faith in Jesus Christ to other people if you can't prove that it works. And the evidence that, that our faith in Jesus Christ works is our love. And if you're familiar with the Greek at all, you probably know that there's three words in the Greek that translate to love in English. And in this case, Paul has chosen to use the word agape. So agape love is a selfless love. Agape love is a love that acts for the good of other people. And, and when you, when you act and, and when you truly love other people, when you truly live life like that, you're modeling the same love that, that Jesus had for us. You see, he, he acted in our best interest, not his, whenever he came down to earth and, and, he, and he died on a cross for us. Not for his sins, but for our sins. Imagine the, the, the love that that took. And so when we, model this, when we model love, we're modeling that. And when the world looks on it, they say, that's just odd. To see people that are, that are truly, genuinely caring about other people and not just themselves. I mean, think about it. When somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I have this really great offer for you, or, or you just won this, 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 uh, this drawing or this, this award or whatever, don't you sometimes find yourself thinking, yeah, that's a little bit too good to be true. Or what's their angle? What's in it for them? But God's people are different. When God's people come together, it's not about what's my agenda, but what's but what uh, but what's yours. It's not about advancing my cause, but what about uh, advancing everybody else's, helping everybody else. And guess what? If we all go into it with that attitude, we end up being better off in the long run. And so. But this idea of, of real, genuine love is odd to the world, and yet people are, uh, the people of the world are strangely drawn to it. People stand around, and, and they look at it, and they, they say, that's just not normal. And they're right, it's not normal. And that's why we can know that it comes from one place, one place only. It comes from God. Paul describes love as, as, as a fruit of the Spirit. I love the fact that he chose the, uh, fruit there as, as an example. Because, I mean, think about it. If you have an orange and you want orange juice... It's not very hard. I mean, the, the juice is this is very nature of the orange. It's, it's what it's made up of. And so all you have to do is simply squeeze it and the juice pops out. And the same thing is true with us. If God lives within us and God is love and you allow him to dominate your life and the Holy Spirit to work inside of you and you produce fruit and that fruit would be, was love, then when we're squeezed, love will pop out of us too. And we'll radiate God's love. And when Christians come together and we're all radiating God's love, we become a beacon to the world. And and we stand apart. And the world stops and they look at us and they say, what's that? And and when we add in the, the additional step of faith, And we step out and we have the faith enough to act, to go out and to to share our faith with people and to boldly reach out to them. And with the credibility of having uh, this love, people can look at it and say, I want to live like that and accept Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior. And the beauty of it is that as as the faith is planted in them, as as God begins to work in them, and, and they grow in faith and they grow in love, then, then they too begin to radiate God's love, and they radiate God's love to their friends and their family, and the cycle just goes on and repeats and repeats, and the church grows and it grows and it grows until the whole city, the whole world, comes to know Christ. There's another example in the Bible where, where God. Uh, there's another example in the Bible we can look at where it, sh- it talks about this idea of faith and love and how it affected a church. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe uh, at the many signs and wonders that were performed by the apostle. And how did they do those signs and wonders? Through faith. And then continuing on in verse 44, it says, And they be, and they. And the believers were together and er- had everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions and they gave it to anyone that, who had need. And what is that? It is love. And so the church in Acts, they had faith. They had love. And they made a difference in their community. They made a difference in the world. The Bible says that they turned the world upside down. And the church in, in Colossae, they made a difference in their community through faith and through love and guess what we can make a difference in our community through faith and in love through faith not in ourselves but in God because only God because only God because only because it's only through God that we can do it we can't do it in our own strength and we have to have faith faith that, that faith that's not just through theoretical but practical faith that drives us to action Faith that drives us to action to reach out and to share the gospel. Having faith that when people hear the gospel and they accept the gospel that they're truly better off for it. But faith alone is not enough. It has to be backed up by love. They will know that we are Christians by our love. And no one can argue with the power of love. And I think that is what makes a church a truly outstanding church. That is what makes a church grow. It all begins with faith and with love. So if the worship team wants to go ahead and come back, we're going to spend some time in prayer tonight. Um, I'd like to give you a few areas that you might want to focus on as, as we pray. Let me ask you, are you living your life with a business playbook, leaving no room for faith, I encourage you to come up to these altars where you once had faith, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to help you to grow in faith. Ask Him to, to give you more faith. Ha- ask Him to help your faith to grow. Ask Him to show you this week where you can, tr- you can, uh, where you can apply your faith in your daily lives. Second, do you find yourself, do you find yourself not radiating God's love? I mean, when you're squeezed, is it love and is it God that pops out or is it something else? I mean, sure, we're all a work in progress. But a majority of the time, is it love or is it something else? So if it's not love, would you come to the altar, spend some time asking God to help you grow in the fruits of the Spirit and to change you from the inside out. And tonight, if you do operate in faith, if you do radiate love, why not ask God to help you put your faith into action? Ask Him to help you. Ask Him to help set up divine appointments for you this week, and to give you courage to step out in faith and to tell others about Jesus. So why don't you come and spend some time in prayer tonight, or make an altar for your hands. The Altars are open.